Hey, hey, guys and gals, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by the Go Wild app. See, if you're like me, you post your successes of your hunting and fishing trips on your social media outlets, and undoubtedly, that results in trolls and gutless punks coming on my outlets and telling me to go to hell or telling my kids to get run over by a bus. Um, It's sad what our society has come to. And that's why uh, I've been spending a lot more time on the Go Wild app. See, this is a place created by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen and women. There's no hate. There's no vulgarity. It's just people encouraging each other, sharing in our successes and failures, and uh, and sharing cool stuff like recipes as well. So if you want to be a part of something like that, just go over to the Go Wild app. It's free. Did I mention that? It's free. Download it onto your iPhone or Android and become a part of a very fast-growing community. And I look forward to seeing you over there. I remember it well, I was riding high when I drove you to the lake that starry night. Took a little detour through an open field. Our first taste of how freedom feels in it. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Cable Smith. Welcome in, everybody, to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. That's my good buddy, Zane Williams, 87 Chevy 4x4, kicking things off for us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. Man, what a great time to be alive in the great outdoors. We've got archery seasons in full swing all over God's green earth. We've got dove season going on. We've got uh, rifle season opening up for Texas folks anyway next weekend along with waterfowl season. It's Man, it's like this catch-22. I don't know which one to do, to be honest with you. I love them both so much, uh, but I think I'm going to end up taking the boy on his first deer hunt. And he is only five, uh, will be six in December. He is not hunting. He'll have his BB gun out there, I'm sure, but uh, he will. he'll be watching Dad hopefully take a a deer or a hog uh, next weekend so we will share that experience and i don't know who's more excited i was tucking him in the other night and he was like hey dad is next weekend the weekend that you and i get to go to the deer lease and mommy and my sister stay home <laughs> so obviously uh that tickled me and uh, i'm just i can't wait to to make some memories i'm sure that many of you guys and gals are in the same boat with your little ones but uh, there's nothing better. Take a kid hunting or fishing and get them off that stupid Xbox. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today, so you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos because we're ready to rock and roll. And off the top, I've had uh, quite a few of you email me about this bovine tuberculosis being found in white-tailed deer. And I think it's from a, a couple articles that were published up in Michigan, uh, maybe Minnesota, I'm not sure, one of those two states. And and they actually, and I looked up their, um, their fish and game reports, and they do have positive tests, like sometimes up to 50 or 60 a year. Um, but I'm not sure if that's relevant in Texas because it doesn't get as cold here. And I'm not an expert on it, so I said, you know what? Uh, I know someone who is Alan Kane, our Texas Parks and Wildlife whitetail 
program leader, longtime friend of the show, he'll be here. And we will discuss bovine tuberculosis, whether you need to watch out for it this season or if it's not really a factor in Texas. Uh, that will be coming up in just a minute. And, uh, and then we will dive into the Olympic National Park mountain goat story. That's something that I've touched on on my social media outlets uh, quite a few times, and, and for good reason, because when you hear about a national park eradicating or relocating hundreds of mountain goats, um, I want to know, first of all, why? And secondly, if they are going to be killing them, they damn sure better not be shooting them out of a helicopter and just leaving them there, right? Let hunters come in and help in that effort because that's a tag of a lifetime for a lot of people. We get to hunt a mountain goat. Hell yeah, I'm in. Uh, where do I sign up? Uh, so I don't know if that's an option that Olympic National Park will be offering, but their plan is to remove every goat from the park. And, uh, and that's why we'll have Lee Taylor. She is the deputy superintendent of the park and she'll come on and, and talk about their plan to remove these goats and why they need to remove them. I mean, that's interesting in and of itself. Why would, why would a national park want to get rid of their mountain goats? Uh, so cool stuff coming up with Lee. And then we will round out the broadcast by talking some bass fishing with elite series angler, Hank Cherry. You probably remember two weeks ago, we had on three, um, anglers who are leaving the elite series along with 77 others. There's 80 of them total. And they are forming the new Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour. And so we had Kelly Jordan, Brent Ayler, and Chris Lane on. Uh, this week, we've got one of the guys who was left behind. Hank Cherry is a big stick. He, you know, his stats, his, his career performance speaks for itself. He should have been invited. Some of the other guys should have been invited as well over some of the guys who got the call. So we'll get his take on how that affected him and how he thinks it will affect his sport and the elite series going forward. So uh, the other side of the story, so to speak, coming up with Hank Cherry. So that's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one. Guarantee that. A couple other things to mention. Don't forget our October photo of the month contest is going on right now. We've got a Kofi Jaeger ambush, the new rifle system for your box blind. That's right. If you're a whitetail hunter, the ambush system. I mean, this thing is awesome. It, if you miss with this thing, it's because you can't shoot. <laughs> uh, no more wounded animals. I mean, not that we're out there wounding animals, but uh, sometimes bad shots happen. Not with the ambush. It takes all of that away. Uh, you, you put it on the animal. Boom. It's going down. <laughs> and we're giving one away. The thing retails for over $500. And all you have to do is email me your best hunting or fishing photo. You can send them to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com or you can send them via Instagram or Facebook, whatever you like. Uh, and then uh, our monthly winners will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt Trophy Axis Deer or Black Buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch. Another great grand prize hunt offered up by Coons Canyon Ranch. Uh, one other thing, uh, let's do a giveaway. Why not? We like to do one every week. Lone Star Beer just sent me some new swag. I've got a Lone Star Beer cap. And then uh, they co-partnered with Texas Trophy Hunters and sent me a bajillion koozies. I will send a cap, koozie, and a Lone Star Outdoors Show sticker to, well, we'll draw a winner from everyone that emails in. That way everyone has a chance. Just email Lone Star, that's Lone Star, to 
Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And you could win the Lone Star Beer prize pack. We might even throw in one of those Dove Seat coolers as well. Um, let's take a quick break when we come back. Bovine tuberculosis. Is that a threat in our Texas whitetail deer? We discuss next with Alan Kane of Texas Parks and Kicking ass is getting old. Taking names takes its toll. On a worn out, busted, beat up soul like mine. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts. Just 30 minutes south of DFW, if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs, you need to give them a call. Hunts are $2.50 a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is $1.50 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. Baby, draw the car like a highway junkie. Stopping just for coffee and cigarettes. Long and winding wide line gold. Burning up her wheels with no time to rest. She's a free. That's all going the long shots. Highway Tears bringing us back She's on the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you for being here today. As man, we've got uh, an interesting topic to get into right off the top today. Uh, bovine tuberculosis. It is common in white-tailed deer in some of the northern states. I say common. I mean, it's not like every deer has it. But um, in certain areas, I mean, this is a bad deal. Uh, it's transmissible from cattle to other servants like deer or elk. And um, I've recently gotten quite a few emails, uh, messages on Facebook and Instagram from you folks wondering if this is possible in Texas. And while anything is possible, um, I don't know if it's a threat in Texas, if it's something we need to be watching out for in southern states. So I figured since I don't actually know the answer, I just have a, a thought since I haven't heard about it. I know someone that does in the form of Alan Kane, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Whitetail Program Leader. So Alan will be here momentarily to give us any and all information he has pertaining to bovine tuberculosis in whitetail deer. But first, this segment probably brought to you by First Light. If you haven't seen the new Catalyst system, uh, this is what I wore at the deer lease uh, the last three days. Actually, I snuck down there from Tuesday to uh, Thursday, and um, yeah, it rained, it was windy, it was pretty much miserable, but I was warm and toasty in the Catalyst uh, shell jacket and pants, and you know, the material is not waterproof, but it is water resistant, and so I never got wet. 
um, you know, even in some pretty heavy rain. So that was kind of a bonus because I didn't, you know, I didn't buy it to stay dry. I bought it to stay warm and to uh, stop that wind from cutting right through you, which it did. So check it out. It is the Catalyst soft shell jacket and pant. And you can find it at firstlight.com. Really, I'd say it's perfect for the whitetail hunter. Uh, first light, go further, stay longer. All right, uh, well, let's bring on our first guest. He is a longtime friend of the show. And whenever I've got a question on whitetail deer that I need answers to, I turn to Alan Kane, our whitetail program leader. Alan, it's great to visit with you, my friend. Thanks for being here. Yeah, glad to be here, Cable. It is my pleasure. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and uh, well, actually, before we discuss today's topic of uh, bovine tuberculosis in white-tailed deer, um, tell us what you've been up to. You know, archery season is in full swing, and uh, the rifle opener general season will be here before we know it. Sure. So this time of year is um, busy for uh, myself and our staff, Um in the field where a lot of folks uh, are biologists out collecting uh, deer survey or running our deer survey routes around the state. And that's what we use to get population estimates for the different deer management units and our statewide population estimate. And in fact, we'll be finishing those up uh, here by the end of October. And so I can start the analysis and, uh, and determine uh, what the population looks like this year. And then the, uh, the other big thing right now is a lot of our uh, biologists, including myself, are making harvest recommendations for uh, a number of landowners that are participating in the Managed Lands Deer Program, mm-hmm. and uh, and then just landowners in general that is, are looking for harvest recommendations on what they should be harvesting this year in terms of number of bucks and does out there. And then uh, it's always busy this time of year with hunting forecasts, and folks ask what's what the season going to be like, and and it might be a little slow this at least early <laughs> in the year with all the rain we've had. Uh, just not only green and, and a, basically a giant food plot across the state, um, which is going to make it a little tough to find some deer. They don't have to move far to find something to eat. But just the flooding is making it difficult for some folks to get into releases. And uh, oh yeah, I uh, hope that uh, the the flooding and, and the high waters go down so folks can get out there at least by general season and uh, enjoy the rest of the. Uh, the rifle season out there mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, you know we've had a ton of of rain up around uh, wichita falls where one of my leases is and you know you can't get a truck out there you have to have a an, an atv and my buddy uh, jay he said oh it's all right we can get around we got a polaris ranger you can't get these things stuck 30 minutes later we were stuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we were just driving across a wheat field you know it was just um so soggy that we just started rutting it up and luckily it's his property so he had no one to blame but himself oh that's good well i've been some hunters have been asking you know about season this year and i said and i told them i said there's always a silver lining you know i know there's a lot of rain it might be tough hunting this year but one if harvest is down just think that we're saving a lot of those bucks that might not get harvested this year hopefully they'll be around next year be a year older bigger Mm -hmm. antlers so that's a good thing and then this rain even though it's early um we've had really good soil moisture that's been banked with all this good rain that's soaked in and so that means we're going to have a lot of winter weeds um in january february which is great so as those 
bucks come through rutting and, and the does and get into winter they'll have plenty of forage out there to eat and and go hopefully go through the winter in good shape and come out uh in the spring in good shape with uh ready to start growing some big antlers for next mm. year and producing lots of fawns yeah absolutely as long as the uh as long as the farmers can get that wheat planted i know that's been a struggle for a lot of them due to the rain uh, yes but yeah. uh it's coming up on crunch time as far as they got to get that in the ground let me yeah. let me ask you this alan um we all know that on you know private property, uh, folks want to kind of carry their bucks to five and a half and six and a half if they can, and, and this is on big places, you know, where they're actually managing, trying to grow big deer, whether that's high fence or free range. Um, what about just your average guy who's got a let's just say three to five hundred acre lease? So growing big bucks, not really a part of the equation, you know. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, you can't count on all of your neighbors. Uh, trying to do the same thing. So generally speaking, what is a mature buck in Texas Parks and Wildlife, or your opinion, out there on the open range? Well, I think uh, my definition of mature buck is something that's five and a half or older, mm-hmm. um, in, in my opinion. Now, when it comes to hunters and, and what they perceive a mature buck to be, um you know, it may just be a deer that's three and a half or older. And so we kind of look at our antler restriction regulations in effect in 117 counties, you know, before the restrictions in place, um, the vast majority of the harvest was bucks two and a half years of age or younger. So a lot of one and two year olds, you're talking 60 to 70%. In some counties, as high as 80%. Hmm. And after the antler restrictions went into place, that shifted to where the majority of bucks are three and a half or older. And so, for lots of low fence country, small acreage properties, if you can get those deer to three and a half, four years old, you're going to have a nice quality buck out there for the most part. And I think something that people will be happy with. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the 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 trophies in the eye of the beholder, regardless of size the antler, it can be just the experience that people enjoy as much as anything else. Um, and so, for those folks that got these small acreage places, you know. If you're in a county that may not have antler restrictions in it, then you know you might try to let those deer get to three and a half before you harvest, uh, if if that's appealing to you as a management strategy. Um, Would you say that's the average age of bucks harvested um, across the state, three and a half? Um, I think the majority. Of, I'd have to look. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, we're talking free range, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the. The majority of bucks that are harvested around the state are going to be three and a half or older, but it's probably that three and a half year old age class. Uh-huh. Uh, even in the counties without antler restriction, you still see some percentage of the bucks out there being harvested are one and two year olds. But as you get to places like South Texas, they may be uh, some of these ranches are implementing some intense selective harvest, so they may be removing spikes or three points or in some cases, it's not just an antler. It's like I'm going to remove the bottom 10% of each age class out there because mm-hmm. so, I've got so many deer that I need to remove. Um, but in general, you know, I think the bulk of the, the harvest is probably that three-and-a-half-year-old age class. Okay, right on. right on. Well, we know antler restrictions are working. Uh, I'm excited that we've got some test counties right now where mule deer antler restrictions have been implemented for the first time interested to see how that pans out i think it can only do good things uh, for the muleys up there in the panhandle Um, but let's switch gears alan and i know you've been hit up a bunch people calling emailing you 
about bovine tuberculosis in white-tailed deer. Uh, a couple stories were published recently, and, and next thing you know, everyone's all freaking out and scared that, hey, are, are the, is the deer that I shoot this uh, this fall going to be infected with bovine tuberculosis? My understanding is that that's more of a possibility uh, the farther north you go because it is a lot wetter up there and colder. Um, do Texas hunters need to be wary of that possibility? So it's a good question, Cable. We, as you've indicated, we have lots of, of calls in the last I don't know, couple of weeks since this story broke. And, and in Texas, hunters have – we don't have any concern or we don't have any reason to think TB exists in Texas deer um, populations out there. In fact, the story was about bovine tuberculosis in Michigan white-tailed deer. And mm-hmm. uh, we need to make that clear to the listeners and everybody else that in Michigan um, – they have an issue with bovine TB in the white-tailed deer herd in some areas. It's not like it's throughout the entire state. Um, right. I think Michigan's been testing since 1995, and um, they've had a number of TB cases. Oh yeah, they've had. I think they had 40 something positive tests last year. So it it, it is kind of common up there. Yes, it is, and and it, we're not exactly sure, um, you know, how the deer got it. it. It probably was infected cattle that had TB, and you know the deer were feeding in the area where the cattle were and it probably got transmitted that way and, uh-huh. and it's different um kind of ecology or biology of the deer up there when you those deer uh, in michigan they tend to yard up in the winter and so when things get real cold or snow on the ground they go to areas where a lot of deer concentrate and they're feeding and so that's an easy way for disease transmission to occur and so that's why you have some of these areas in michigan that have endemic uh, T, uh tb in some of their deer populations. But mm. in Texas, again, we have no reason to believe that there's a TB exists in the deer population. In fact, um, Texas Parks and Wildlife has been assisting the Texas Animal Health Commission in monitoring for TB and white-tailed deer uh, in conjunction with our CWD sampling efforts. And so really there's two areas of the state that there could be a concern of TB, and that's in the Trans-Pecos and the Panhandle. And there there is, actually is um, a few dairy herds um, in those areas and maybe a beef cattle herd in the Trans-Pecos that have TB and they're under quarantine. Mm. Um, and so if TB was to get into the, the wild deer herd, um, that might be the place that it would occur. But we've been sampling out there since 2012 in the Trans-Pecos and 2015 in the Panhandle. We've not found any uh, deer to be TB positive. And so when folks bring in deer to our CWD check stations, um, we're collecting the lymph nodes, not over, not only for the CWD testing, but we're also looking for TB in those. And, uh, and so we haven't found any. Uh, so what's the big uh, deal about this? I mean, is it transmissible to humans? I guess that's the fear. Yeah, that That's the fear is mm-hmm. that it's transmissible to humans. Um, it's a bacteria that affects basically the respiratory system and uh, and can be transmitted it's transmissible to animals and, and people and so that would be the the health concern mm-hmm. um but again in texas we don't have any evidence or record that tb has affected any deer population um the again the few uh cattle herds i think they're dairy herds up there uh, in the panhandle that have tb they're quarantined animal health commission has a plan to, to manage that and keep in mind that's a low, generally a low deer density area, so it's not like deer are likely to come in contact 
with these dairy cattle. Uh, uh-huh. Generally not a concern. Um, periodically there's other wild species out there that may be examined for TB by folks like the USDA Wildlife Services. Um, uh, they'll check on animals occasionally. Um, and we do tell hunters um, that if you see a sick deer, regardless of whatever it has, it could be it could be some with pneumonia or it could be TB or CWD or anthrax or whatever. I mean, just something, a deer that looks sick um, probably wouldn't shoot it, but you might call um, the local parks wild biologist or a game warden and let them know, so I saw a sick deer, it's looking really strange, behaving strangely. Um, just wanted to let you all know, and if we have the opportunity, we'd probably go collect that deer or um, at least you know, investigate and see what's going on, especially if we see a number of deer. Dying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're helping everybody out if you pick up the phone and make that call because uh, yeah. you don't want to see those, whatever the case it is, you know, you don't want that to spread. Um, now, Alan, you were telling me off the air, due to all this flooding, you've had some people call you who've had a few dead deer turn up and um, I'm not sure what killed them, but I know you have a, a opinion on, on what you think it was. Yeah, you know, I had a, and we hear reports all the time of the dead deer, but I had a landlord not far from where I lived that it called and uh, he'd found three three dead deer, I think two bucks and a doe that all died within, you know, a week or two. In fact, two of them, I think, were within the same day. And so, luckily enough, they found one that was fresh. I could go out there and look, and we did a quick necropsy and, um, you know, it was a year and a half old buck, and um, which appeared to be very healthy, but we opened it up and um, there was uh, the lungs uh, had some uh, hemorrhaging in them and there was some fluid around that and there was some hemorrhaging around the heart and you know without running a test and sending it to the lab our best estimate is, is it's uh, EHD uh, epizootic hemorrhagic disease which uh-huh. is carried by a little um, uh, midge or basically like a little gnat um, and it can infect animals or affect deer. And so, but, you know, for the most part, deer in Texas are, are fairly resistant or they've been exposed to EHD and it's not necessarily a big problem like you see in the southeast in some of those states. You'll see EHD outbreaks where they kill 50 or 100 deer in, you know, one particular area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and with all this rain, before we got this cool weather, with all the rain, um, you know, we had lots of little muddy pools of water around there, shallow, kind of warm, and that's perfect midge habitat. And so if, um, some of these animals could have been stressed for some other reason and got infected with EHD. It potentially could have led to their death. And mm. so, you know, that's kind of what we were thinking on these three. But um, since then, he hadn't had any other problems, that, that particular landowner. And so, um, We've ever seen the did. widespread EHD breakout or uh, outbreak in Texas like we have in those in some of those, uh, you know, southern and, and midwestern states? No, we, we haven't seen the outbreaks like they, they have in the southeast. I mean, I've talked to some of my counterparts in um, Virginia and Tennessee and, and some of those states over there, and, and they'll see... I remember some of the stories these guys talking about. They'll be walking down kind of a, a drainage. It might be, you know, five or ten miles long, but 
they might see 30 or 40 dead deer down there just walking down um, that drainage. And so and that's a severe EHD outbreak there for some of those guys. And some of them lose hundreds of deer, you know, every year or more. And, uh, and in fact, I mean, I think several years ago, Montana had a big EHD outbreak that really uh, hurt their whitetail deer herd up there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we're lucky in Texas. Uh, our deer have been exposed to that and um, are, are somewhat resistant to uh, the problems that that you might see in other areas of this uh, country. Okay. Well, Alan, always great visiting with you, my friend. Thanks for shedding some insight. Wanted to make sure we talk people off the ledge. Uh, it's okay. Your, your deer's probably <laughs> more than likely not going to have bovine tuberculosis. You know, it's nice to have a biologist come on and, and uh, alleviate our fears on that front. So we appreciate the time. Sure. Anytime. Glad to visit, Cable. Check back in. We'll see what gets harvested this year. All right. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. All right. Our Texas Parks and Wildlife Whitetail Program Leader, Alan Kane. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my mounts, whether that's uh, fish, a whitetail, an exotic or, hell, a mountain lion, and everything in between. And they've been doing it, they've been taking care of me for seven, eight years now. It's been a long time. They do amazing work. They offer fast turnaround time. No more waiting a year and a half for a whitetail mount. How about six months max, huh? Yeah, check them out. GR8mounts.com. That's GR8mounts.com for your next trophy. Let's take a quick break. Up next, we'll head to Washington State and dive into the mountain goat issue at Olympic National Park. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. The dance floor hot while I'm gone. All right, waterfowl junkies, the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose. It's uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck, you throw it in the pile, and 10 minutes later, he's laying there flopping. Uh-uh, we don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle, give it a little twist, boom, dead instantly, never felt the thing. The finisher is only 14 bucks. It fits on any waterfowling lanyard, and you can find it at adrenal-line.com. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds, highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817 965 1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. Hey y'all, this is Jason Bowen and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. On the land there stands a cabin that our grandfather built. When I'm away hunting, I feel overrun with guilt. One of my favorite tunes of 2018, Hard Times Are Relative, title track off our buddy Jason Boland's latest record. Uh, Check that out. The whole disc is great, by the way. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you guys and gals for being here. You are tuned in to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by 
Dallas Safari Club. I also want to thank Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our longtime presenting sponsors. And I want to thank you for being here. It is great to have you. Uh, thanks for letting me ride shotgun with you today as we are all set to head up into the Pacific Northwest and discuss some problematic mountain goats that are being dealt with, to put it nicely, uh, up at Olympic National Park. But before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Check us out at biggame.org. Um, okay, well, our next guest is the deputy superintendent of Washington State's Olympic National Park. And uh, if you've been paying attention to the news, you've probably seen the story. Uh, there are some goats there, mountain goats, that are not indigenous to the park. They were introduced, uh, I think, in the early 1900s. Uh, but they've become a huge problem. And so the park has come up with a plan to deal with this situation. And we're going to dive into what that plan entails. And so uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Olympic National Park's Lee Taylor to the show. My pleasure. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at uh, Olympic National Park? Oh, well, um, Olympic National Park is a large national park in the northwest corner of the United States, and I am the second in charge of the park, so I'm responsible for all of the, the park operations. Okay. And so what what type of wildlife, are, you know, is most common? I know, I'm sure there's a lot, but uh, as far as the big game species, what? what... Uh, well, um, lo I would say the most common is deer, lots uh -huh. of mule deer, um, but we also have elk um, uh, and mountain goats, of course. Right. Yeah, so I would say of the big game species, those are the ones. Okay. What about bears? Yeah, we have black bears, no grizzly bears, but black bears in the park as well. Okay. And have uh, have wolves made it that far? Um that far west to you yet? They have not. They've got um, a big obstacle, which is a major north-south highway that is a, a significant barrier to um, migrating back across the state for them. Ah, well, that's probably not a bad thing uh, for, for the park anyway. Um, but, okay, what I wanted to talk about, you mentioned mountain goats. Uh, this has been in the news um, here in, in recent months. And I, I guess these goats actually are not indigenous to the park. That is correct. Yeah, they were introduced in the 1920s um, before the area was established as a national park. It was just a handful of goats that were introduced, um, less than 10. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the intervening decades, they have um, expanded their range and reproduced very successfully so that now we have about, um, we estimate 700 goats in the park. Wow, 700. Okay. And so they've been creating some problems over the last few years. Talk about the human mountain goat interaction and, and why that's been a, a kind of a negative thing. Well, um, they are very um, attracted to human beings because they crave salt, and there's no natural salt licks in the park, uh -huh. um, which in their, in their normal range, there is salt available, but here there is not. So they will key in on um, people, their um, 
backpacks, anything that has sweat on it. They will go to places where people have urinated. Um, and in some cases, they've become not just used to the presence of people, but actually um, aggressive towards people. And um, we had, in fact, a fatality uh, in the park in 2010 where a goat fatally gored a hiker. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. You don't think of a mountain goat as an animal that uh, would kill a person, but... No, you don't, um, yeah. but it did happen here. And so when so, when when that happened, did the, this unfortunate hiker get gored in the leg or in the stomach or like how how does that become fatal? Yeah, it was in the in the leg. Uh, so probably the femoral artery or something. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, I did read that. That's unfortunate. Um, so at what point in time did you guys decide? Okay, we've got to we've got to come up with a solution to knock down a number of these goats in the park. Well, I would say um, actually the park went through a similar effort back in the 1980s and did some goat relocation and removal mm-hmm. um, and pushed the numbers back down. But, you know, the population has since rebounded. And also would clarify that it's not just because of the element of, um, you know, these dangerous human-goat interactions that's driving our plan to to remove mountain goats from the park now, but it's really primarily um, an ecological decision. So mm-hmm. national parks are all about preserving the natural um, biodiversity of an area, and that includes in some cases trying to remove both plant and animal species that aren't naturally found here. Um, and the goats in this case do wallow and cause damage to some of our fragile subalpine meadows. Um, so that's another reason. Which I'm for, sure elk like to hang out there. So. Uh, yeah, um, elk are our elk are more of a lower elevation species, so you don't see them much up in the subalpine huh. parts of the park. Um, they tend to stay down in the river valleys. Uh, they do go up higher somewhat in the summer, but not to the same extent that the goats do. Okay. So what is, like typically the mountains that are found in this park? Uh, what's the elevation? So the the mountains, um, the highest peaks in the park are over 8,000 feet. Uh-huh. So, you know, six, seven thousand, eight thousand 8,000 feet in elevation. Okay. Okay. Um, so we have something similar in Texas. You know, we've done this extensive desert bighorn reintroduction program. It's been going on for over 50 years. And we've spent millions and millions of dollars, and we have these invasive Audad sheep uh, that are native to Africa, and so Texas Parks and Wildlife comes in, and, and they don't like to talk about it, but they do it. Uh, and they, you know, they shoot them out of helicopters, and in a lot of cases, they just leave them lay. And it's because of, like what you said, uh, they're competing with basically habitat that those bighorn sheep uh, need, you know. Um, so they're not as, I guess, at least the goats are from the same continent. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so... Talk about the plan, exactly what you guys are doing. You said there's over 700 goats currently in the park, um, or there were. I know you've started the relocation program uh, We so have, far. yeah. We were able to to relocate about 100 goats um, during two weeks this past uh, September. Uh-huh. And the plan is to continue that over the next two years. So in 2019, we'll be doing more relocation of goats during July and August for two weeks in each month, and then the same thing the following year. Um, We are working really closely with um, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife and the U.S. Forest Service to relocate goats to parts of the state where these goats are native and where the population um, 
could use a boost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's uh, beneficial in um, two ways to, to get the goats out of the habitat here where they don't really belong and are doing damage and to get them to a place where they can augment populations that are are, have dropped in numbers. Um, and so we're going to be focusing on this relocation effort for the first one to two years of this project. Um, but we know that we're not going to be able to capture every goat that's in the park. Um, it's very rugged terrain. Um, they um, can become more wily and harder to capture as time goes by. Right, uh, right. You know, the and, first few um, probably just walked right up to you like, oh, sweat, let's go get some. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the the goats that are used to being around people were relatively easy to catch, um, but the wilder goats in the more remote backcountry are not. Mm-hmm. So we anticipate that we'll be able to capture and relocate about half of the goats in the park and that the remaining goats um, will then need to to remove um, by shooting them, mm-hmm. and there will be two phases to that part of the operation. Um, the first will be an effort to um, engage members of the public, public volunteers, as um, hunters mm, okay. to come in and uh, conduct um, like a ground-based hunting operation for remaining goats. We so do they get be, to keep the meat or the hide or anything? They do. They can keep um, any part of the animal that they're able to pack out. How do I sign up for this? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we haven't worked out the details of that, of exactly what the process is going to be yet. Uh-huh. Um, so we will be working closely with our partner, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife. They'll be giving us advice on how to organize and implement the hunt. Hunting. I think you're going to have more volunteers than you realize. Uh, oh, I, I, I actually, <laughs> you may well be right, but we know that this will be an exciting opportunity for um, some individuals. Um, so some of the things we're going to be looking for, though, as we select these volunteers have to do with not only being, um, you know, skilled hunters and being able to demonstrate that they've passed hunter education courses and have some experience hunting large ungulates in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, But these people are also going to have to be very physically fit because we're talking about really wilderness backcountry terrain um, that could require, you know, long-distance hiking and then even needing to go off-trail into some pretty rugged remote terrain to be able to hunt the goats and then getting the meat out. Um, mm, you're describing my resume to a T, so this is, this is going to work out great. I can, <laughs> I can tell already. <laughs> no, you know, it's uh, I think everybody, big game hunters in North America, would. I mean, I think the majority of them would like to have the opportunity to, to take a mountain goat, but it's like, you know, one of those deals where the, the supply doesn't meet the demand and, as far as available tags are concerned. So, and uh, and that's initially why I wanted to visit with you because all of this is news to me. Uh, you read these articles and you know published online and stuff, and never once did I see anything about the volunteer, you know, hunter removal aspect. I just figured from what they were saying that y'all were going to go in with helicopters and just smoke them all. Yeah, the the final step of the process will be um, helicopter-based hunting for any animals that we can't mm-hmm. get through the you know ground-based hunting operation. Because um, there still will be animals that will be sure. um, difficult for people to to reach, but yeah, this um, the volunteer hunter aspect of this is something that's um, yeah we haven't been trying to conceal it. It's in our 
uh, we had to do a large um, environmental impact statement on as we got ready for this, and it's in, there's information included in there. Um, and I thought maybe Cable, once we're off the air, I'd be happy to kind of send you the relevant pages of that so that you can see it. Oh, absolutely. And also give you um, contact information for people who may be interested in participating so that once we figure out what the system is going to be for selection, um, we'll be able to reach out to those folks and let them know um, how they can um, get their name in the lottery or have a chance at least to participate. Right. Okay. Excellent. And how many uh, years, you know, you've talked about the various phases of this program. Uh, how many years will the hunter, the volunteer hunters be uh, a part of the equation? Well, it will be either um, one year or two years. And the way that this um, project is set up is that it's not ongoing through the course of the whole year. We have specific time periods when we'll be um, working on different parts of the operation. So the earliest that we would be beginning the ground-based hunting part of the goat removal would be next September. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if we don't, if we do not start it next September, and that'll be driven actually by how many goats we're able to relocate in July and August next year, and whether we think we've we've exhausted um, our ability to capture the goats mm-hmm. and relocate them. Um, if we get to that point, capture a lot of goats in July and August, we might start the hunting next September. If not, it would be the following September. Okay, and. Will there be tags that they'll have to purchase? I'm just thinking, hey, maybe a way to fund the relocation would be through having the hunters, and hunters don't mind, you know, pay 500 bucks or whatever it is for a tag. Um, yeah, we're not going to be doing that. And part of the reason is that, you know, this is not a public hunt. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to make that distinction that um, hunting is illegal in national parks and that, that this opportunity is not a public hunt. It's actually part of a kind of a park management project and that the people who are selected to participate will be um we will be signing them up as as volunteers for the National Park Service um and so it's not we are not interested in recouping costs or making money through the opportunity to help fund the operation it's really something that's quite different from a normal hunt where somebody would pay for a tag. Right, right. I think uh, there's there's one other instance that just comes to, to my mind, um, and I believe it was in the Grand Canyon. They have a bunch of bison there. I mean, it way exceeded their uh, carrying capacity, so they had a, a similar type of deal. I can't recall if they did a, a draw or how they selected the hunters, but uh, it seems a lot better than just having to go in and shoot them all, and then you've got all these carcasses laying around that, when well, you know, that's an eyesore in a national park. You know, what are you going to do with the rotting carcasses? Tourists don't want to see that. So it yeah, seems no, like that, a, I agree with you, and that's um, why we decided to include that as a part of this yeah. project as well. And, yeah, there are other national parks where um, they have had hunting operations as part of an uh, an um, as an action to, like, control the numbers of animals. And I know, for example, that this happened at Grand Teton National Park mm-hmm. with elk and also at Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Um, so there are um, other examples of times when the National Park Service has engaged a member of the public as volunteers to help mm-hmm. with the hunting operation. Sure, sure. So the bottom line is, you know, we all love goats. They just can't stay there, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, right. they got to go. Yeah, that is the bottom line. So the plan is to get them 100% out, uh, every last goat, because uh, you mentioned earlier that this 
a similar program failed in the 80s because they you know they didn't quite get them all and, and here we are 700 goats strong again so um, that's correct yeah our goat is to get our goal not our goat our goal <laughs> yeah. is to get down to zero goats on the olympic peninsula okay well interesting stuff i'm i'm uh, certainly glad that you're able to come on and visit with us and and i'm personally excited to hear that there is that opportunity um you just don't want to waste all the meat and it just seems like a lot of folks would would jump at the chance to to help practice conservation because we're getting that habitat back to its uh you know normal state the, the way it was intended to be by getting the goats out of there yeah well thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about the project yeah and if folks want to go to the uh, website what's the what's the park's website it's www.nps.gov uh-huh. and then backslash O-L-Y-M for Olympic. And there are links on there to get you to information about the GOAT project. Okay, perfect. Well, Lee, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, so there she goes, Lee Taylor, the Deputy Superintendent for Olympic National Park in Washington State. Uh, so not all doom and gloom, you know, um, initially, like I said, I thought they were just going to shoot all these excess goats and leave them lay, uh, which would have been a crying shame because there's such a great opportunity for hunters to come in and do their part to help in the situation. So I'm glad that the park has realized that, um, that segment of the show was proudly brought to you by Pulsar's new Helian monocular. You can check it out for yourself by visiting PulsarNV.com. Well, let's take a quick break. Up next, we'll check in with Hank Cherry. He is uh, one of the world's top bass fishermen. There's no denying that, but he wasn't invited to fish the new Major League Fishing Pro Bass Tour. You know, we had some of the guys on two weeks ago that left the Elite Series for the newly formed tour. What about for the fellows who are left holding the bag. What happens to them, and what does it mean for the Elite Series? We discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Fought with my fist and I fought with my tongue. Confronted my fears at the point of the gun. All that I ask is one simple request. Just give me some peace, Lord. Give me some rest. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Hi folks, Roland Martin here, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I'm going down to the bottom of the sea until I found the deepest part of me, and if I drown, at least I know that I died free, searching for my there's a little Sean McConnell, bottom of the sea, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Uh, thank you to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Thank you guys and gals for being here. We are rocking and rolling, about to talk some bass fishing. Um, it's not all hunky-dory for the guys who were left behind. You know, we had on Kelly Jordan... 
Brent Ayler and Chris Lane, three of the world's top anglers. And part of that 80 angler group who left their respective tours to form Major League Fishing's Bass Pro Tour. But what does that mean for the rest of the top anglers? And many would argue that uh, just because 80 anglers left, that doesn't mean that they're the 80 best. Plenty of big sticks from both the Elite Series and the FLW Tour were not invited. And Hank Cherry is one of those guys. His stats speak for themselves. Uh, He is a two-time first-place finisher on the Elite Series. He's finished in the top 10 seven times, 16 top 20s, and has career earnings of over a half a million dollars. I mean, the guy is a great angler. Uh, and very well respected among his peers. So why does someone like Hank not get an invite? Uh, We will be joined by Hank momentarily. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of Texas for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Well, uh, what do y'all say we talk a little bass fishing? So, joining us at this juncture of the program, it is my pleasure to welcome Elite Series angler Hank Cherry to the show. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. So, it's off-season time. Uh, what what in the world have you been up to? Uh, I've just been doing a lot of uh, weight training and exercise and trying to rehab my shoulder that I tore, tore up at Lake Ohio this year and uh, just trying to get in the best physical shape and mental shape that I can get in to start the year. Right on. So I, just overuse from fishing? Uh, no, actually, uh, it's kind of something you don't hear about all the time, but I uh, separated my shoulder driving the boat in rough water. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, did you know right away that you'd screwed it up? I tell you, actually, I thought I broke my collarbone when it first happened. It was kind of like a lightning bolt went through my shoulder, but... Um, once I got uh, home from that trip in South Dakota, I got to the doctor, and they're like, no, it's just a separation. Oh, and uh, wow. just a lot of intense therapy and weight training just to get everything back mm-hmm. in line. Well, okay. Well, hopefully you've got that uh, under control for the uh, upcoming season, which is what, what I really wanted to talk about today. I guess it was probably towards the end of September we saw – um, a lot of your peers, just angler after angler, go onto their social media accounts and say that they were, for the most part, leaving the Elite Series, uh, some of them leaving the FLW Tour, but they would be fishing the newly formed uh, Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour. And I think that there's 80 of them. Um, I, you know, I would say you're in that group of what I would consider to be the top 80 anglers. Uh, so w- what does that do to a guy like you who's essentially – uh, on the outside looking in um, as far as this new circuit is concerned? First off, it's kind of a wonder, wonder why this, why that, what was the credential for the guys that were called. And then uh, <clears throat> I guess after that, a little bit of frustration fits in. And at, right now at the point, you're just kind of looking back, thinking uh, you can't control any of that. You just have to look at the industry as a whole and what direction it's headed. And um, right now, I guess you would say, a guy in my position, several of us, uh, it's a great time to be in the fishing industry, for one, with all the changes going on. I don't know if people have paid attention, but there's been announcements and re-announcements. I think I saw one yesterday where 
JT Kinney was going to fish and he wasn't going to fish. And now he's going to be the, uh, I think the official commentator for MLF. Hmm. So um, there's still a lot of changes going on, but uh, my position and at Bass and from talking to the people at Bass and hearing their game plan moving forward, uh, for me, I, this has a chance to just bolster my career. Um, I can't control what the other guys have done. Mm-hmm. I, I wish them all luck. Like I said, I, I was not, and I will always stand for what I think is right and wrong, and in my opinion, the way the thing was formed and the intentions of the league, although had some good uh, ideas for the future, the immediate effect of what they did in that two-month time frame, I think, was uh, disastrous, and I think it was direct attempt and a shot at the bow of bass. But all that being said, if you actually look at the rosters, uh, what's come, what's left with the elites and the new guys, what you have over there, you have really... Not one now, not two, but three competitive fields. Um, it's my direction I'm looking at. Those guys that went to MLF are, I guess, for better sense, they're going to be more like reality TV fishermen. I mean, that's what that show is about. Um, the makeup of the guys that they have over there are across the board from guys that are at the very end of their career, the guys at the beginning, guys in the middle, you know, sponsor ties, all this, that, and the other. I can't control any of that. All I can tell you is that I'm looking forward to fishing the Bassmaster Elite. Uh, the Anderson family and everyone in control at Bass has made a 100% commitment to the anglers. They've invested their time and money into the anglers. And uh, I believe as soon as we all start fishing, come January and February, that it's just going to be null and void, and it's going to be back to the fans watching us catch fish. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right on. So what, and, and everything is money driven, but I mean, is that what the, the big thing was here um, as far as you're concerned? Um, you know, I don't know there was money. I think once you had for a long time, um, just to put a little history behind it, uh, the Chase Anderson and that specific group that's empowered Bass now have not had it that long. Um, I think there were a lot of grievances that were, not taken care of and kind of pushed under the rug before even my time. So you're talking eight, ten years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and I think over time it just grew and grew, and that select group of fishermen, and the ones I'm talking about, you know, if you go back ten years ago, that that select crowd was just kind of tired of their voice not being heard. Um, you know, when the economy crashed, I guess payouts went down, uh, entry fees stayed up, and Everybody saw a rebound, and they felt like they weren't being heard, and um, you know they, they weren't getting to recoup any of their losses before that. Hmm. But at the same time, you can also look at that as, since I began fishing, the competition level had risen higher and higher and higher every year. I mean, it got so much that you, your rookie class wasn't even rookies anymore. They were established guys from other tours one million of dollars just wanting to come this way and fish. Mm-hmm. And I think that competition that was coming in was going to root out some of the old regime. And I think that part of the MLF idea, too, was a way that some of those guys could prolong their career. Some of the older guys now, huh? that haven't won in a long yeah. time. Yeah, I'm not saying it's good, bad, or different. I'm just saying it was another option. Right. Um, because 
you know, how it was before when you were done, you were done. Yeah. That, um, that three year thing where having to hold your own, you know, if you didn't make it by the points or whatnot and had to do your average, um, it was getting harder and harder to hold on to that. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, 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 but when it comes to fishing, it, it, it's all the same. Everybody talks about the names and who the greatest is, this, that, and the other. It has never, it's never been a competition of me going out and fishing against Kevin Van Dam or Kevin Van Dam going out and fishing against Mike, Mike Iaconelli. This is all began with Ray Scott way back when. It was always who could go out, compete against Mother Nature, and beat the bass. Mm-hmm. If you beat the bass, it doesn't matter who you're fishing against. Right. I mean, right. that's just that's just the way I looked at it. And competition is competition. Yeah. And what builds competition, what builds names, your names and your reputation, everything gets built off the competition. And it's just like in professional sports, like baseball, football, you know, once upon a time, all you heard about was Roger Clemens in baseball. Now all you hear about is Clayton Kershaw in baseball. It's all there's always going to be an up and coming. It's the way it is. Sports. It's just the way it goes. Everybody's always going to have their favorite, but there's always going to be the next guy. There's always the next guy to fill that space. And hopefully, uh, myself and a few others will get a chance now to maybe get a little more uh, publicity and a little shine on us, and um, we can step up. But the young crop that we have coming along, uh, really, in all three tours. Are, are going to be a force to be reckoned with because there's guys that are really, really good that no one's heard about and everybody's still focused on like their heroes of the sport, like Kevin and Ike and Skeet and those guys. They may be on the backside of their careers and eventually, uh, probably in the near future, these these fans are going to have to have somebody else to gravitate towards. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me ask you this. Is there any... I'm sure when you first got wind of this, uh, there's a tight knit community that you're probably pretty angry. Uh, you know, I, I know I certainly would be, uh, but you, you talked about how this is going to be a good opportunity. Like you just said for you and a, a few others to maybe get some shine on your careers. Um, what about the elite series though, as far as the payouts, the number of tournaments, um, how have you guys, uh, filled the void of I don't know how many guys it was that left the Elite Series, but I know it was uh, uh, quite a few. Uh, so how has all that played out from the uh, Elite Series perspective? Yeah, well, I'm not going to lie to answer the first part of that about that. When I when I first found out and I knew that I'd get invited, I was I mean mad's not the word. I was pissed. I mean I was mad. I felt like you know that my body of work has kind of been just trashed. But then once I talked to people and you kind of look at the criteria. And the qualifications for making it when there was none. I mean, choice is choice. I mean, if you have A, B, and C there, and this guy's aligned with this sponsor, this guy's aligned with this sponsor, and that's obviously the way some of the, the picking went on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's frustrating. But as far as bass, they, um, I think we were left with after medical exemption, and everything left. I think we were left with 42, 43 guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they gave. Uh, instead of 10, 15 to the Opens guys. And I think they sent out 10 other, uh, I think it was 10 other uh, invites that they deemed through, I guess, world rankings or whatnot, um, people that they would like to have come to bring a little more star power to the tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, they asked back three or four Maybe the number was five uh, ex-elite guys that were 
on the border, you know, at that 71 spot that didn't make it back like mm. the past year or two. Mm. I think that, I don't think they have, I don't think they have a magic number where they want to be at just because uh, it cannot be that cut and dry at the moment because you still have to worry about those guys competing in 2019 in the open to fill those spots up. So mm-hmm. if you fill the spots up all the way now and they go by their two year, uh, keeping your card, quote unquote, uh, that would kind of be impossible to do that in 10 guys every year. So, um, I'm not sure exactly what the final number is going to be. Uh, the last, last my talk was somewhere probably between 72 and 75, mm-hmm. which is, you know, 25 boats off the field. But at the same time, I think it just offers, a a better chance for everybody to get some publicity. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's guys maybe that you haven't heard of that you're going to hear about, or there may be some guys that come from FLW that were, were not as big over there. They come over here and they get a little more shine in their face. Um, I fish both divisions and I can tell you that on the bass side, a lot more cameras, a lot more microphones, um, I guess a lot more attention, not taking anything away from those guys. Cause I have some good friends that fish FOW, and that's where they're comfortable at, and that's where they fish. Uh-huh. I just think at this point in the time, if everything is going to be uh, to the best of the anglers, that in all three tours, get 100% of the attention be on the anglers. Well, Hank, I'm certainly enjoying the conversation as we are taking a, a, an inside look at the underbelly of pro bass fishing. Um, but we do need to take a quick break. So are you cool to stick around for uh, for a few more minutes? All right, perfect, man. I appreciate it. Excellent. And that segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by John X Safaris. The date for the Lone Star Outdoors show safari this summer is June 7th through the 15th. If you want to join me on an epic trip to South Africa's Eastern Cape, all you need to do is shoot me an email. I'll send you the info. I've got, I think, room for three hunters left. We're taking eight guys. We've got five spots filled. If you want to come, you want to bring a friend, bring your dad, bring your father-in-law, hell, bring your wife, whatever, just email me, Show at gmail.com. We'll be right back with more from Elite Series Pro. Hank, Cherry, you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Late night train back to Austin. Couple cars, cocaine in the interstate. Most every night this is what it's like. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. That's Parker McCollum's Misunderstood. Thank you guys and gals for being here. As always, it is a treat, a privilege, and an honor to be talking all things outdoors with you. And uh, 
right now, we are kind of peeling back the layers of professional bass fishing. Uh, two weeks ago, we heard from Brent Ayler, Kelly Jordan, and Chris Lane, three of the Elite Series pros who left that circuit to fish Major League Fishing's Bass Pro Tour, along with, uh, well, total, there were 80 guys who left the Elites and the FLW Tours, leaving quite a few worthy anglers kind of in their wake. What does that mean for the Elite Series? We are visiting with one of the guys who was left behind, Hank Cherry, a big stick on the Elite Series, and um, and will continue to be just that on a completely revamped Elite Series, which we will continue discussing with Hank here momentarily. Uh, this segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, and Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And, hey, polish off that delicious barbecue with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. All right, uh, let's get back into it here with Hank. You know, one thing that I'm curious about, Hank, is the fact that you've had these guys leave, which opened up, you know, like 40 or 50 spots on the Elite Series, and I don't know how many on the FLW Tour. But how is that void going to be filled from a sponsorship standpoint? Because all of a sudden, you've got 40 openings, 50 openings, and, you know, the industry at some point, from a sponsorship standpoint, is tapped out. And I'm not saying that we've reached that point already, but, you know, the industry can't just keep supporting more and more and more anglers um, because it's damn near $100,000 to fish one of these pro circuits, whether that's uh, the Elites, MLF, or the FLW. I mean, it's expensive. So where are those dollars going to come from, and how is that going to impact professional bass fishing going forward. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the, the sponsorship dollars are kind of the, uh, the magic pie that everybody's looking at. But the problem is, within the fishing industry, the pie is only so big. Mm -hmm. The more they come into it, the pie just gets cut into smaller pieces. Um, that being said, a lot of the major sponsors already have ties with FOW and Bassmaster. I'm not sure how that correlates and crosses over to MLF. I'm not sure if that negated contracts or contracts had to be redone because I'm sure, like most of mine are, there are contingent on fishing one particular series. Um, the thing that I tell people about sponsorships is, you know, and right off I'll let everybody know because everybody has this assumption that we all make hundreds of thousands of dollars on sponsorships. <laughs> and that just is not true. Right. Um, <laughs> Some of us, some of us, some of them do really well. Some of us do good and make a living at it. And there's some guys that struggle at it and have to fish off credit cards. They do. Um, but as far as sponsors, it's always been, I guess my philosophy is you have to have your core guys because your core guys, like your people that are there taking care of your motor, your boat, your fishing equipment, that's all there. But to be successful in this sport, you're going to have to get some kind of non-endemic support, whether that be from drink companies or clothing companies or something that's outside of the sport. Because until we all come together and this comes full draw 
and there is one, you know, fast master major league fishing worldwide, quote unquote, tournament trail mm-hmm. where, hey, these are the top 80 or 100 guys. These are the guys where the sponsorship's money's coming. If you want to be in this group, you need to work to get in this group. Until that happens, you know, sponsor dollars are, are going to be thin and hard to come by. So as far as other guys who you would consider big sticks that, you know, didn't get invited or weren't part of this conversation, um, other than yourself, who would you say are some of the guys you think will do really well on the Elite Series now that, um, I mean, certainly uh, it's an opportunity, um, you know, to uh, yep. to have a great year. The first one that comes to mind, I think it came to everybody's mind, was Keith Combs. Incredible angler, like two millions in winning. Um, he can catch them deep. He can catch them across the country, shallow, smallmouth. It didn't matter. You know, he's the first one. Then you have guys like you know Matt Heron. Um, he's a great angler. Been accomplished on FLW, accomplished on Bass. And you know, you still have some guys that turn theirs down. You have Steve Kennedy. He's won about everything there is to win. Um, Seth Spider, who's probably one of the most intriguing, maybe misunderstood young fishermen there is out there. That's a really he's a really he's a really cool kid. He's a good guy, and but I don't think you look at that part as the guys that were there because the guys that were there they earned their way there. Yeah, just because they weren't chosen, it doesn't it doesn't demean their position or what they were. They earned their way to get there. They came through the ranks and got there. I think <clears throat> what you're going to see now is you're going to get the opportunity, like I said, to hear from and see some guys that maybe were not on your radar that are very very good anglers. Uh, one of those that comes to mind, I know a kid's coming. His name's Shane LaHue. He's from uh, North Carolina. He is a very, very, very good fisherman. He um, is on the uh, Pure Fishing Pro Staff with me. He's a local kid. He fished in college at UNCC. Uh, he was, I think, Jordan Lee and Matt Lee's nemesis in college. Hmm. Great kid. He just hasn't had his shop to, to shine yet. And then you have this kid that fishes the Opens that uh, – I keep warning people about because I've kind of kept track and followed his career as Patrick Walters. I think he's going to be a, a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and I think uh, another reason that this younger group is going to come in and shine and they're going to not have the same pressures is because they're not going to have to come in and look at a face full of these people they've idolized their whole life right off the bat. If right. that makes any sense. With my oh, yeah, it's, I'm sure like, it's intimidating. I'm, yeah, I'm looking at all this, and I'm like, oh, my God. This is that guy. This is that guy. But at the bottom line, you know, it's just the mindset, and I think a lot of them have now. They're so advanced when they come through high school and they come through college, and then they fish a little bit of the weekend stuff, and these guys that have fished FOW or the guys that have qualified through the Opens, they're, not, they're, they're starting out at a much higher level than in the past. So I think all you're going to do, especially with the technology age and the dead finds, especially like with Garmin and LiveView and seeing it all there, it's just stepping up the competition. And all the only thing I can see is the competition getting stronger and stronger, no matter who's fishing, just keep going forward. Because mm-hmm. like I said, if you get caught up on the past, you know, everybody would still be wearing you know, that Barry Bonds jersey, that Michael Jordan jersey. But you now, you know, everybody said you would never see another Michael Jordan. Well, now our debate is, is LeBron James better than Michael Jordan was? No. 
but, you, know, but, it, but you can have the conversation for yeah, sure. We're going to do that. That's the way it's, the way it's going to be from here on out. Because my kid, my son's eight years old. You ask him who Michael Jordan is, he's got no idea. Yeah, yeah. You ask him who he's probably got a Steph Curry Wars jersey. Yeah. He knows. <laughs> yeah. That's the uh, that's the best part I think of this whole this whole shakeup thing is I think fans are going to get the opportunity to uh, be able to pull for and see a lot more guys. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when it's all said and done, I honestly believe, I honestly believe through talks with people on all three sides, I honestly believe within the next three to five years, it will all be uh, one way. It will all be one tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not see... I do not see the sponsorship dollars, the vast distant communities of the world supporting or three big entities surviving. Yeah. I just don't see it. Now, which way it goes, I don't know. I do know that uh, I am lucky to be partnered with the one that's been around for 50 years. Uh, they have a big history, things going the right way. And um, I don't see them going anywhere. Um, but I do see some sort of governing body fishermen association like basketball has or football has something controlling the way the sport goes. Yeah. I do I do see that. And I don't see fishermen running it. I see uh, you know, business people taking this. I kinda like I don't know, like the NFL has their player association or whatever, however however all that works. I, I, I do see that in the future for bass fishing because I believe it's gotten so big that that has to happen for the sport to go forward. What about Major League Fishing's format of uh, weighing every fish over a pound compared to the traditional five-fish limit and uh, weigh-in? Well, the the every fish thing, um, I kind of see all sides of it uh, when, I, when I look at it because it, when you're a kid, and they talk about taking it back to the grassroots. When you're a kid, you just want to catch them. Mm-hmm. Don't care how big they are, you can catch them. Um, me personally, I enjoy the five biggest fish. And if I'm not mistaken, I think MLF maybe has tweaked that a little bit. And I think their regular tournaments may be the five biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, but on that too, the only problem I have is um, I'm not a big fan of the way I'm on the boat with the scale thing. I'm just look. They're they're scales made by humans, being run by humans, and we all know humans are not perfect. Humans are going to err. Something's going to matter. And my only thing is, by looking at their pay format, some guy's going to finish 11th a couple times by an ounce off handheld scales, and it's going to cost him like ten, eleven thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And I think for the fan interaction, I think the fan enjoy. Um, seeing the fish but now on the other hand when you flip it to you know an environmental side and taking care of the fish um i think we can all do a better job of that and i think the boat industry is uh working their best to diligently to you know improve aerator systems uh this that and the other Mm -hmm. but as far as format i just i like the i like the idea of going to catching the five big ones Right. I just think it's just. A, I think it makes it more of a. Uh, I wouldn't say challenge. I just think it ups the ante. 
from from just my interactions with people on social media, um, I've I've heard from the diehard guys. Generally speaking, they like the, the excitement of the weigh-in. Uh, they're kind of they're like, well, they call major league fishing the most little fishes, and uh, <laughs> and then from a casual fan like someone like my wife who's not really invested in the sport could care less um she'll sit down and watch major league fishing but she doesn't really enjoy any other fishing show so it's kind of i don't know it's kind of a catch-22 there yeah well you know it's it's kind of like i talked to people and everybody was coming at me and i've done a lot of interviews about what they were going to add new to the sport with the tv and stuff and i said it's kind of like this there's a lot of guys and a lot of people that'll sit down to watch iron chef you know, one of those cooking shows. But after they get done, are they going to run out and go buy knives and pans? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of fans that come and see a weigh-in, and they hear a guy talking about what he caught them on or how he caught them, and they're going to run out and buy fishing equipment. They just do it. That's something about you see it, and it's just... Yeah, that's true. I mean, because my wife isn't going to give bass fishing any ROI on their investment of her just being a casual Major League fishing fan. No, she just isn't. Do it that, that's good. What they're doing, if they're hitting it right, it's going to be that that reality fishing style where they get a whole new set of watchers, which is a great thing. But as far as selling fishing equipment and the fishing industry going further, is a whole other different thing. But here's another thing people have to pay attention to when they talk about MLF. You know, the champion this year over there was a is a good buddy of mine, Greg Hackney. Now you can say that they catch a bunch of little fish, but if you watch that guy fish, if you follow his career ever. He is one of the best big fish catching machines to ever pick up a rod. And oh yeah, yeah. And if you watch him, he, when even when he competes in that show, because believe it or not, the first time I ever watched it was this year when we were at Jacob Peraza's house, and I wanted to see him fish it because I'd never seen it. I don't take it. I don't watch a whole lot of fishing shows to begin with, but <clears throat> um, you know he takes the same mindset to that. He takes to a regular tournament. He's going after big ones. Mm-hmm. He might catch some little ones, but Greg's intention when he when he when he Pitches that bug around as you catch big ones. So, yeah. And a lot of that too, something people don't quite understand is, big fish is only big. They just got to catch what's there. Yeah. But that's all part of the that's all part of the competition thing. I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, you catch the biggest ones that are there. Mhm. Mhm. Well, hey man, I I certainly appreciate it. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, certainly looking forward to tracking how your season goes on the Elite Series. Good luck rehabbing that shoulder, and I hope you have a hell of a season. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So there he goes, Elite Series angler Hank Cherry. Uh, Very insightful stuff there from, you know, the other point of view, a a guy that wasn't invited to fish the Major League Fishing uh, Bass Pro Tour. Uh, So enjoyed hearing Hank's take on that situation, and, and I hope that, And I don't know what the future holds for the sport. Uh, Now you've got them going in two different directions with the Major League Fishing format and, you know, still the traditional five fish limit, five biggest fish, like the Elite Series and FLW Tour. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Uh, That segment of the presentation was brought to you by IOTA Outdoors. Y'all have seen my... Custom 7 mag from Horizon Firearms. I've got the IOTA Crux stock. Why do I choose that stock? Well, it's simple. It weighs less than 3 pounds. It is perfect for my favorite type of hunting, which is spot and stalk. A lot of times in big, wide-open spaces where you have to walk a lot. So weight means everything. The IOTA 
uh, Crux is perfect for the backcountry hunter or the spot and stock hunter. You can find it at iotaoutdoors.com. Well, just looking at the clock here, unfortunately, we've got to go, got to get out of here flat out of time, and I've got a tree stand to get into. So, actually, I think I'm going to hunt a pop-up blind uh, this afternoon. But anyway, I do want to say thanks to all of our guests, of course, Hank Cherry, also Lee Taylor from Olympic National Park, and our good friend uh, Alan Kane, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Whitetail Program Leader. We will do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. More importantly, thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Now all my riding friends are coming undone. The three 